Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Discerning the Depths of the Love of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 24, 2011. Ask whatever you wish. It's the stuff of childhood fantasies, like waving a magic wand. But that's what happened to King Solomon in the Old Testament reading for this week. He had a dream in which God invited him to ask for whatever he wanted. It's easy to hear literary echoes of this story in Jesus' similar command to his own disciples a thousand years after Solomon. Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If human sin is essentially a heart curved in on itself, as St. Augustine once said, it's healthy to acknowledge how often our pious prayers are little more than selfish whims. A bigger house, a better job. Back in the 4th century, Evagrius the Solitary admitted that, quote, Often when I have prayed, I have asked for what I thought was good and persisted in my petition, stupidly importuning the will of God. But when I've attained what I asked for, I've been very sorry because the thing turned out not to be as I had thought. At other times, when encouraged to ask for whatever we wish, we turn from self-regarding to other-regarding prayers. But even these prayers might miss the mark of our true calling. Henry Nouwen suggests that the temptation of Jesus to turn stones into bread was the temptation to be relevant, to do something concrete about the world's suffering. Nouwen writes, Oh, how often I've wished I could do that, Walking through the young towns on the outskirts of Lima, Peru, where children die from malnutrition and contaminated water, I would not have been able to reject the magical gift of making the dusty stone-covered streets into places where people could pick up any of the thousands of rocks and discover that they were coffee cakes or fresh-baked buns, and where they could fill their cupped hands with stale water from the cisterns and joyfully realized that, they, that what they were drinking was delicious milk. King Solomon avoided both traps. Instead of asking for long life, great wealth, or death to his enemies, he asked for a discerning heart. A discerning heart deconstructs our prayers that try to bend the world to our selfish advantage. Discernment also recognizes that there's something even better and beyond serving others. At its best, a discerning heart believes that God is unconditionally for you. It knows that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. The most discerning prayer you can ever wish is to live in God's love and to accept his acceptance. The epistle this week contains Paul's famously debated comments about God's election, foreknowledge, calling, and predestination. 
But instead of theological speculation about who is excluded by these mysteries, Paul's focus is on pastoral consolation about who is included in God's love. And his message is uncompromising in Romans 8.39. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Paul grocery lists over 20 threats to our human well-being. Suffering, weakness, frustration, bondage to decay, ignorance, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, demons, powers, the present, the future, heights, depths. And then, as if he had overlooked something, Paul includes anything else in all creation. We can personalize our own lists. Parents, children, the boss, employees, colleagues, bad choices, bedeviling sins, public failure, private disappointments, dark dreams, anxieties, school, a bad business deal, and on it goes. Paul is adamant, though, nothing can separate us from God's love. Paul wasn't a travel agent describing places he had never visited. He spoke out of deep convictions forged in his personal experiences. After his conversion, God promised Paul that he would suffer much for his kingdom and that prison and hardship awaited him in every city. And so it did when you read through the book of Acts and through his epistles, brutal treatment, constant harassment, strong opposition were his regular fare. In the book of Acts, if you read carefully, you see that Luke records at least eight murder attempts on Paul's life. Paul compared himself and the first apostles to sheep headed to a slaughter, people in last place, public spectacles, dishonored fools, vagrants who were hungry, thirsty, homeless, and in rags, and in those memorable words, the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Is anyone weak without my being weak, Paul asked. Ultimately, he was martyred in Rome. And yet through all of this, Paul remained insistent. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from God's love. When we feel alienated, separated, and estranged, maybe by others or maybe by our own selves, when it feels like everyone and everything is against us, it's easy to forget that God is unequivocally for us. Sometimes we get mud on our glasses, and the deep realities of divine love are obscured by outward appearances. In the gospel for this week, Jesus describes the subtleties of God's kingdom that require a discerning heart. He says that the presence of God's kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed, something insignificant rather than extravagant, fragile and not mighty, unlikely rather than obvious. His kingdom can also be imperceptible, like yeast leavening a batch of dough. 
It's difficult to detect unless you look carefully. It's not apparent even though you know it's there somewhere. God's reign is also like a fishnet containing the good and the bad together, or a field of wheat infested with weeds. The ultimate reality of God's kingdom is that his perfect love is unconditional. Everything else is penultimate. Nothing can separate us from his love. And now for further reflection. Consider these four perspectives. From Isaiah 54, verse 10. <clears throat> Though the mountains may be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. From Paul Tillich. You are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you, and the name of which you don't know. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens, we experience grace. And then from Donald McCullough. Grace tells us that we are accepted just as we are, we may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. We may have more failures than achievements. But we are nonetheless accepted by God, held in his hands. Such is his promise to us in Jesus Christ, a promise we can trust. And finally, from Mother Teresa, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of being unwanted, uncared for, and deserted by everybody. The greatest evil is the lack of love, the terrible indifference towards one's neighbor who lives at the roadside assaulted by exploitation, corruption, poverty, and disease. Discerning the depths of the love of God, nothing can separate us. For books this week, I review a title called Gifts from the Poor, What the World's Patients Taught One Doctor About Healing. The book is by Dr. Glenn W. Gielhode with a ghostwriter, Patricia Edmonds. Austin, Texas, Greenleaf Book Group Press, 2011, 262 pages. Once again, the title, Gifts from the Poor. At the end of his book, Glenn Gilhode observes that, quote, writing a book dealing mostly with oneself is an even bigger challenge than his lifetime of remarkable exploits. Indeed, and therein lies my ambivalence about this book. Believe me, Glenn Gilhold's stories are bigger and better than your stories. In college, he earned twice as many credit hours as required for graduation. His website lists the initials of his ten academic degrees after his name. Pictures in this book include not only his surgical mission trips all around the world, but also his numerous marathon medals, medical awards, and hunting trophies. 
Gilhold says Patricia Edwards is a man extracting maximum reward from every moment. On the other hand, there's little reflection on his divorce after three years of marriage. Malpractice lawsuits, which he calls baseless. The loss of surgical privileges at George Washington University Hospital, a mere injustice. Or even a failed romance later in life. Gilhold admits on the last page of his book that he might appear driven, but he nevertheless insists that he's called. I read this book because the title reminded me of something that Mother Teresa once said. Only in heaven will we understand how much we owe the poor for loving God as we should. So it's a paradox that despite Gilhold's egocentrism, he nevertheless understands and has lived this insight of Mother Teresa. Many people ignore the poor, and those who do help the poor typically portray themselves as paternalistic benefactors. In other words, we always see ourselves as creditors and not debtors. Gilhold flips this self-serving portrait. He writes, I'm an American. I've been on the receiving end of a whole lot of advantages and have not even paid back the interest. Yes, Gilhold is a medical maverick on a mission. He might have been better served by his co-writer Patricia Edmonds, as was Paul Farmer in Tracy's Kidder book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. So, while I'm not sure I'd want to have dinner with Glenn Gilhold, I'd still be grateful if one of my kids joined him on a medical mission to the poor. Dr. Glenn W. Gilhold, Gifts from the Poor. For movie this week, we go to China with a title called Up the Yangtze from the year 2007. Chinese-Canadian filmmaker Yung Chang remembers the stories that his grandfather told him about the Yangtze River. But with the Three Gorges Dam, those stories are disappearing beneath the rising floods created by the dam. Completed in 2006, the Three Gorges Dam is the largest hydroelectric power station in the world. It's a source of Chinese pride for taming the mythic river with engineering skills and creating economic opportunities. But Yun Chang is interested in how the dam displaced about two million peasants who lived along the river. The little family sacrificed for the big family, explains one peasant. Chang thus focuses on one family, the Yu family. The mother and father are illiterate and eke out a subsistence living on the shores of the Yangtze. Their middle school-aged daughter wants to go to college, but they compel her to skip high school in order to work on a cruise ship that caters to Americans and Europe, Europeans. The entire film and the cruise ship in particular are jarring metaphors for China's socioeconomic upheavals in its interface with the modern world. Up the Yangtze was nominated for Best Documentary Film for the Independent Spirit Awards. The film is in Mandarin, 
with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted the so-called Carmina Gadelica from the years 484 to 577. The Carmina Gadelica is a collection of prayers, hymns, charms, incantations, blessings, and runes, and other literary folklore poems and songs that were collected and translated by an amateur folklorist named Alexander Carmichael in the Gaelic-speaking regions of Scotland. He did that work between 1855 and 1910. The Carmina Gadelica from the years 484 to 577. The love and affection of the angels be to you. The love and affection of the saints be to you. The love and affection of heaven be to you, to guard and cherish you. May God shield you on every steep. May Christ aid you on every path. May spirit fill you on every slope, on hill and on plain. May the king shield you in the valleys. May Christ aid you on the mountains. May spirit bathe you on the slopes, in hollow, on hill, on plain, mountain, valley, in plain. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 24, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.